Older Burton kids, you guys can head uh, out to the classroom uh, to get your teaching. And uh, the rest of you, if you have a Bible, please go to Ecclesiastes. It's a book in the pretty much dead center of your Old Testament. Um, it's right around Psalms, Proverbs. It rolls right after Ecclesiastes. Uh, it's a pretty short book, so you can pass it uh, fairly quickly. If you don't own a Bible, just want you to know we have Bibles in the back. And please hold on to that if you don't have one. It's our gift to you. We love uh, for you to have that, to read, to study, to know more about uh, the God that we love to worship. And if you are new to this gathering, I know that we've been seeing a number of uh, new faces and great conversations uh, amidst what God is kind of doing in your life. We have many who are uh, skeptical and doubting and seeking. So I uh, just want you to know we're aware of you. We, we realize this is a very different place for you possibly to be, to gather, to uh, sing some music and hear a guy talk about a, a, a Bible and uh, to see some families get up and raise hands, extend hands, and pray to a God that you might not believe exists yet. So uh, we pray that, that this book in particular, Ecclesiastes, is a phenomenal book for you because uh, Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived apart from Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is basically going to say, hey, um, your life is totally meaningless if it's untethered to the God who lives over the Son. And so um, we want you to think deeply and think rightly about um, who is the God of the Scriptures and does He exist? And if He does exist, um, what does that mean for you? And so we've been walking through this book. It's been a great book. And if you're uh, wondering how to see your Bible and understand your Bible, there are 66 books that we believe are the revelation we've received from God about God. I always say you can't understand your Bible at all if you don't see Jesus in it. So um, you're going to hear Jesus' name more than most any other name as you're here gathering because every book points to the center of the solar system proverbially which is Jesus Christ and so it's fun going to a book that just asks more questions and gives answers and see that man he's still trying to give you a silhouette of Jesus at the end of the day he wants you to see beyond his questions and beyond the son that we live under to a God who resides over it and sent his son son to be to be found in and so we believe that fullness of life fullness of joy is lived to this Jesus, from this Jesus, and alongside this Jesus. And so Ecclesiastes has been a phenomenal study, only two weeks. I'm deeply encouraged at the fruit already. I'm deeply encouraged at the ways that it is strengthening you, challenging you, and causing you to consider and think uh, more about your faith and even basically philosophy of existence. And, and here's what we've been seeing from uh, front to end. What you're going to continue to see is this guy, Solomon, we believe, who is writing this book. He was a king at the time. He was David's son. He was deeply wealthy, more than anything you could ever fathom or comprehend. And he is writing this basically like an old grandpa at the end of his life going, hey, sit on grandpa's lap and let's chat about what I've learned in life. You might want to pay attention to these things and learn from me because I've had it all, done it all, tasted it all, and I enjoyed a lot, but or I had a lot, didn't enjoy a lot. My, my joy ran out of steam. My happiness didn't end. There was satisfaction that was not met constantly in my soul. And so in his longings, in his striving, he'll constantly say, it was like chasing after the wind. It's as silly as having a wind collection. You go to someone's house and say, hey, I gotta want to check out my wind collection. I got strong wind, weak wind, twirling wind. Hey, you want to take a look at it? That's how silly it is to say and think you can find meaning and value in this life untethered to a God who made it all. And so he's going to keep laying his case there. He gives us his experiment, so to speak. And so he's going to consistently lay before you, don't let your goal be self-indulgence. Don't let your goal be wisdom. Don't let your goal be wealth or wisdom or fame or popularity or prestige. Let your goal be the God of all those things. Chase him and not just what he's made. Because if you just chase his, what he's made, you're going to end up in this fractured place of constantly hitting the wall, always wondering and whining about why you're not satisfied. 
And so he's going to show us why this is really good news to find the God of the Scriptures, namely in the face of Jesus Christ. And I want to remind you, you're going to be constantly frustrated with this book if you think this book is designed to give you answers. He's just asking you questions. It's a weird book in the sense of that, where God is almost completely silent and you just have him laying before you questions because he wants you to do the homework. He wants you to hear these questions and go about figuring out what these things might mean. And all his questions are to slowly bring you to the conclusion that apart from the God over the Son, life here is meaningless, purposeless, and total vanity. Encouraging, right? I mean, I had some of the, so man, the first week here I was so depressed. I'm like, well, yeah, he wants you to get to that state so he can warm your heart with himself. And so um, we want to get to that place where we feel the lostness, feel the vanity, feel the futility that is life apart from Jesus so we can ultimately live rightly in our lives the way that God has wired us to live. And so he reminds us, if you don't know where you come from and you don't know where you're going to, then have the intellectual honesty to admit life is pointless here. Right, so, so we labeled out the hedonists, humanists, atheists, agnostic, empiricists, went through all of those to show all of those beliefs fall short because you have to do something with right now. And if death is the end for us that trumps every card you play, that's not a good game because you gotta do something with meaning and purpose and joy. And so here's what he's gonna do. Uh, we discussed last week the difference between happiness and joy. Uh, we talked about how happiness can be taken from you at any point, but jo- joy is the only thing that can be sustained in your life. How happiness is this weird game we play where all the solar systems align rightly according to you, and that makes you happy in this emotive way. And so that's how we know that we're happy or not happy. But here's the deal. We said um, anyone can say anything to you. You can get one sentence of information that will destroy your universe today. Right? You can find out news tomorrow that will floor you in the existence that you have. And I just want you to know... Um, Some of you have received that this week. Um, Talking to some of you this week, um, you received news Monday morning that floored you. And praise God that he built us up in the word to be prepared for those seasons and times where you're going to hit a wall and need joy, not just being happy. And just to encourage you, I received tragic news Tuesday night. So, so awesome that we're all in good company here. Like no one's sitting around here going, hey, life is awesome. We're all happy. Like, you know, put a smile on and be plastic. No, we all realize at the end of the day we're all going to be painted up, put in a box, dead and gone. And if we're not going anywhere, not, we're not from anyone of meaning, then this life is pointless. But praise God, we believe as Christians we come from God, we're headed to God, and the here and now deeply matters. That now hope is tied to something, joy is tied to something, meaning is tied to something. So look at what Solomon writes in chapter 2, or in chapter 2, verse 1. He basically rolled out for you last week an overview of his whole experiment of his life. I'm going to just try to find meaning, try to find purpose, try to find wholeness. And now he's going to show us the details of it. Verse 1, here's what he says. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure, enjoy yourself. But behold, this was also vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under the sun during the few days of their life. Okay, so he tells us that that Solomon, right, the wealthiest man who ever lived, the wisest man who ever lived, who had it all, done it all, seen it all, he says, hey, I set out my life to use every bit of my resources, every bit of my affections to test and try and pursue pleasure. 
Right? I just wanted to get at it and find out where's the meaning, where's their value, where is their purpose. And he, he shows us that he said, come now, I will test you, test meaning, test value, test all of this with purpose. And he says, under the sun I searched and searched. And the first thing he said I tried was laughter. I tried comedy, right? He had Brian Regan over. He had Jimmy Fallon over. Like he, he tried everybody that you think is so funny to find meaning. And what he's, what he's saying is, hey, laughter is a gift from God, but laughter is not God. Right? Like, like laughter doesn't give you meaning in life. Laughter actually deters you from some of the pain and ache you feel at times, right? Uh, a lot of times, sometimes you just need is a good, bold laugh to just distract you from the reality. That's why, actually, if you just look over history at some of the best comedians of our time, you know that uh, those who made us laugh the hardest actually lived the saddest and took their own lives because they were hiding pain and agony amidst making everybody else laugh. It was just to cover up the tragic nature of their soul that was untethered to God, didn't have Jesus, and wondering, what is this life for? So they give their life to comedy. They give their life to laughter to say, hey, maybe I can find meaning there. It's what some of us do, right? I mean, when you have just a down-and-out day, what, some of you guys like just a brainless comedy on TV, right? You love just sitting there laughing, don't even know why you're laughing, but it's just like, ah, this is so funny, and you just want to keep doing it because it numbs the soul. All right, so Solomon's going, hey, listen, um, it's not sinful to laugh. God gave us laughter. God is a humorous God. Just read the scriptures. But, but laughter is not God. Laughter will not ultimately give you meaning in life. He says this is mad. If we're just electrochemicals that came from the same puddle of mud that just happened to exist and are from nowhere going nowhere, then laughter is just weird. Laughter doesn't give you meaning intrinsically. It doesn't reveal to you where life can be found. And then he says, uh, maybe I should try the Baileys and bourbon, right? Um, some of us tap into that, right? Or the alcohol, the, thing, the, other, the other thing to numb your soul, right? Amazing how at comedies, a lot of the people love to, to combine these. This is meaning. This is endurance. This is purpose. This is where it all is. I mean, just look at every beer commercial, right? Dos Equis. You see that one? With the guy in the suit? You ever seen that? I mean, he's got just women everywhere. I mean, just his life is perfect because he has Dos Equis. It's just what you'll see everywhere, that this is life. This is true meaning. This is where it's found. You look around and you see people really, really sad, lonely, joyless, and what do they do? Have a few drinks. Lighten up. Just ease it. Go out after work. Find something else to ease the distraction, ease the pain, ease the thoughts. Don't think too deeply. Don't concern yourself with things that matter. Just put Band-Aids on them. Do it with comedy. Do it with alcohol. Everyone is seemingly smiling, happy, joking. Life has reached the summit, you see, in all of these cultural displays of the picture of people enjoying those affairs, right? Um, and we tend to use beverages in general as a distraction, to be honest. It doesn't just have to be alcohol. It can be coffee, <laughs> the fresh fruit juice, you're extra healthy. You worship that thing like an altar. I mean, you guys with juicers, it's just like bizarre. Right? I mean, you just got to put your cantaloupe. You're throwing like full pillars of steel in there and it's gnawing it up. I mean, it's just bizarre. But, but you find total joy in that. Some of you just that. Now, it's not wrong, but what are you leaning into? What are you, that nice cold beer on a hot summer day? That's great as long as it's not God. As long as you're not searching for meaning in that and finding healing in that and finding hope in that. That whiskey on the rocks. That nice wine paired with that perfect dinner. 
Um, we, we look for things, I think, subtly in our hearts without even realizing it, to search out meaning, search out purpose. And the world would say, all these gifts that are good gifts from God, we should take and make them God. And this is where meaning is. This is where life is. This is where your soul can be at rest. He just walks through all of these. You know, it's amazing. Um, as, I t- as I did a lot of college ministry and high school ministry, um, I never met one man or woman who I eventually drove home or picked up at a party who had their face in the toilet heaving, go, man, I've found it. Like, I'm satisfied now. Like, this is the meaning of life. This is where it's at. I mean, I, I now realize why I was created, to heave over a toilet. Right? We laugh, but it's totally serious, right? You see the tragic nature of it. You saw on the news recently with the kid who was hazed. In college, you see the laughter upon laughter, dumbing it down. It's not really serious yet. We go after these things and chase these things, believing that somehow this is where meaning is. This is where wholeness is. This is where purpose is. So we can eat and drink to the glory of God, but when we drink and eat apart from God, it's not glorious. It's addiction and confusion. It's not edification. It's not life. It's not meaningful. He moves on to real estate. Verse 4, I'm just going to give you the list of all these things, right? He said, I made great works. I built houses, planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted them in all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which the water of the forest of growing trees. How big is your house? Want a larger one? Yeah, you do. Right? It's that vexation of lack of contentment that leads us to covet. Right? Um, oh, okay, so I have the house. Oh, it's my neighbor's is brick. I need brick. Oh, he's got the white fence. I need the white fence. Oh, he's got the garage. I need the garage now. Oh, the new garage doors that look like a farmhouse. I need that now. Oh, now I need the pool in the backyard. Oh, he's got a slide. Add the slide in. Hey, I need the landscaping the way he is. Landscaping. Oh, he's got orchard trees, and he can pick his own apples. I need to pick my own apples. And you just keep piling it on, but it's never enough for your soul, really. It doesn't matter where you live. You talk to anyone, the richest who ever lived, the best and brightest. They all consistently say something was gnawing at my soul. I couldn't find the end of it. I never reached the summit. I just chased the merry-go-round. I was in the cul-de-sac of insanity. Just striving and striving for these things. Do you believe that you having more stuff, more accumulation, a better yard, a nicer landscaper, all those things will actually help you validate your existence? That's what he's saying. You believe that will in some way reach you to believe of your existence. Um, it's amazing. If you have time, just read 1 Kings in parallel, in tandem with um, Ecclesiastes. You're going to read insane stuff about the life of Solomon. You're going to read that his own house took 13 to 14 years to build. Bill Gates took like two. All right, so this is massive. This is ornate. God's temple took about seven. So you've got a guy living in a more exotic house of his own than the house where God's glory lived. This is insane, the type of wealth and prestige and fame and accolades that he had. Solomon was filthy wealthy. I want you just to think for a minute. Think about the most perfectly designed home, right? With the most perfectly designed landscaping and vineyards and orchards. You come home from a long day. You come home from a long day with your kids. You pull into your cobblestone driveway, right? Your servant's there opening your door. You get out. He's got a latte on a silver plate. 
You take the latte, you walk in your house, someone unties your shoes, someone takes your kids, bathes them, puts them down, makes them stop crying, puts a sock in their mouth. You just, it's great. They're just doing everything they can to just calm you and give you ease. You go into your big TV room, sit down. Your favorite shows and movies are already rolling. The dinner is already being prepared. And this is just your life. You gaze out your back door at the pool. Someone's already cleaning it, even though it doesn't need to be cleaned. No leaves, just acting like leaves are there. Right? Is that existence to you? Seriously. Is that existence? Is that meaning? Is that purpose? Solomon will say no. Solomon will say, I tried all that. I had all of that. I mean, Solomon, man, he owned Central Park in New York City. That was his backyard, and he had someone to groom it and landscape it, and you couldn't use it or be in it unless he let you. Imagine if that was your life. This is why our world consists of an unending parade of magazines, websites, messages, right, all saying that uh, you need to buy this home and establish this way and design this way and architect this way, remodel this way, landscape this way, all being fueled by, hey, one time Adam and Eve were in a perfect landscaped garden with God. They got kicked out because of sin, and your heart relentlessly wants to get back there, and it can't. So you try to do everything here, you try to organize your way, establish yourself that looks a certain way to try to get back to where your soul was made to be satisfied with the God who created you, owned you, and can buy you and make a way for you in Jesus, but you long and chase the wind, Solomon will say. And you can't get back to that without Jesus Christ. You can't get back to the utopia that is the Garden of Eden that will be made new in the new heavens and new earth. We will be with God, curse lifted, work but never toil, eat but never hungry. Christ makes a way for that. So listen, you're just rebelling and wanting everything that your soul was designed to want. And that's why you do all of these things. So Solomon says, do you think if you had your dream home and your dream property and your dream backyard with your dream landscaper, you'd be happy? Do you think then you'd find meaning? He'd say no. Because here's the issue. Um, all of us, whether you want to admit it or not, now it's all about just being honest, right? So I mean, we get, oh, that's not me. But whether we want to be honest or not, all buy into this philosophy that to be really happy, to really have unending joy, satisfaction, that we buy the lie that, hey, we need more of what we don't possess and then we'll be happy. And a total madness. This is why, you know, you don't buy out of need, you just buy out of total boredom. I mean, I, I would imagine, and I'm including my house. We, we, I bet if we all came and it was like a, I don't know, um, you know, around, around the table, musical chairs, musical house kind of day, and we all said, hey, after this, we're going to leave and go to everyone's houses. There's stuff in all our houses that we buy, not because we needed it, but because we were straight bored. And we're looking for meaning. We're looking for validation. We're looking for that weird relief and excitement you get in getting something new that will somehow validate this is why you're alive this is why you're breathing. This is what you're after. This will give you wholeness. And Solomon will continue to say, no, this is why Jesus in Luke 12, we studied Luke, talks so much about, hey, um, life is not found in the abundance of one's possessions. Like life, like true life. Not talking about breathing and looking and oxygen, but, but meaning, depth of walking. We live in a time where we don't own possessions. Possessions own you. And so Solomon's saying, don't chase that. He moves on to wealth and ease, verse 7. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. 
I also had great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had before me in Jerusalem. I gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the children of man. This is the epitome of the American dream, is it not? I mean, we all would love to have this. True meaning, true achievement is eventually having someone do everything for you. That's the goal of work. Work your way up the CEO ladder so eventually all your minions are below you doing everything for you. And you can put your feet up on your desk and just take one call a day. Right? That's meaning, right? That's when you've made it. That's true masculinity and femininity. And that's what it means to be made whole. Just get a bunch of people to serve you and do for you once you deserve that. Once you've worked hard to get that. Have someone wait on you hand and foot, do your laundry, rub your back, serve you lattes. That's what it means to have meaning. Um, Listen, you want to know the size of Solomon's staff and servants? Almost every commentator that reads 1 Kings, that reads about how much livestock he owned and had to one meal, they estimate 20 to 30,000. That's insane. Listen, next time you're at a sporting event, look around and just kind of consider, hmm, this is a staff meeting at Solomon's house. Like, this is what it looks like. This is what it's like to sit down and go, hey, can you do this? Can you do this? Can you do this? Hey, my shoe's untied. Hey, my sock's dirty. Hey, there's a speck there. Hey, he's got a booger in his face, little Jackson. Hey, can you help me with all this stuff? Hey, the TV's a little dusty. Hey, the pool needs to be clean. The other pool, the other orchard, the other forest. And hey, can you go to Central Park and just uh, mow a little bit? I saw some little shards of grass that were a little loose. I mean, he has someone doing everything for him. He does not need to do anything. There is nothing he did not have. There was not a person who did not exist for a specific chore or specific duty. He had the highest level of wealth and so-called ease. So Solomon's going, what if there was no limit to the people you could hire to help you with your needs? Would you be content then? Would you really be happy? Would then you find meaning and wholeness? No. And listen, um, we evidence this already. We live this life proverbially, proverbially in the United States, do we not? We have so many people already doing stuff for us that servants used to do, right? I mean, you have an army, so to speak, of personal service without you even realizing it, really with the internet too. Just place your order, drop it at your door. Put up the thermostat without chopping wood. Just turn a faucet on. You don't need people to come bring large buckets in. I mean, you've got baristas, you've got bankers, you've got people that all help organize your accounts, do things for you already. You're living this now. So don't think that, oh, if I just had more of them, somehow my life would be at ease. Somehow then life, somehow my life would then be okay and all right. In his day, wealth was demonstrated by your livestock, right? So listen, Solomon owns the Brooklyn Zoo. And some. He doesn't have like a couple pets or a few cows mooing in his yard. He has 12,000 horses. 12,000. He could ride a different horse every day for almost 30 years and not get bored. He had 1,400 chariots. You like cars? What if you had every type of car at every dealership and you could drive anyone at any time you wanted? He could drive a different car from a different dealer every day for four years. Would you then be satisfied? 
Would you be content? Would life then find meaning for you? I mean, he's just stripping the veil. Like, come on, this is silliness. Really? He says the answer is no. What about music? He, he not only had possessions, he had every experience, life experience. And he goes, hey, I don't do iTunes, I own the bands. They come play poolside. Yeah, so he just buys all the bands, he gets all the record labels, and they just sit by his pool like his little minions, and then he goes, oh, hey, uh, Jimmy World, you get up? You play a little jam for me? Dave Matthews, you get up, play a little, little jam for me? Be, uh, okay, sit down, I want someone new, right? He just, he just keeps mixing it up. He just does what he wants. His life is wealth and ease. He divulged in the greatest music, had the greatest parties. Their tour schedule is his home address every day of every year. What if that was you? What about uninhibited sexuality? That was Solomon's world. Every Miss America pageant winner was his wife. He had almost a thousand, according to First Kings, that were there to do whatever he wanted, whenever he wanted, all for him. Men's fantasies were Solomon's realities. Some of you men speaking honestly. Some of you women speaking honestly. Well, do you believe that's meaning? Because that's what culture would say. An uninhibited life of sexuality to whatever you want. That's meaning. That's value. That's worth. That's esteem. Really? And maybe some of you say, well, I mean, I'm not like that. I mean, I'm, I'm single or I'm married or I'm a one-woman man or I'm faithful. Or yet maybe you bring your heirloom of thousands through the Internet and you live just like Solomon. And you're no different from him, still chasing the emptiness that's in your soul through what you're watching and viewing, just wanting to believe that somehow that's giving you meaning. Somehow that's validating your existence. He's basically saying here, guys, I drank until there wasn't anything else to drink. I bought houses until there weren't any bigger houses to buy, and I just got bored. I mean, I had women until there was another type of a woman, and I got bored. I chased every fantasy, and I got bored, and all it became in my life was predictable and frustrating to my soul. That's all I got. Like, that's all I got from chasing all of these things. I mean, there's not a pleasure that I haven't maxed out on, and as I maxed out on it, I continued to walk away more lonely, more unwhole, and more frustrated. Nothing did it for me. Verse 9, okay. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom before me remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. For my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. <laughs> he goes, okay, none of that worked, so I just tried to be the most famous man who ever lived. Well, look, of course he's going to be the famous, most famous man who ever lived. I mean, he had the biggest house, the biggest property, the biggest pool, with the biggest landscape, with everything, with the most women, with the most bands, the most comedians, so why is he not? Everyone wants to come to your house for all the fun. So he said, I even trekked it to where I became the most famous one who ever lived at my time. Everyone wanted to be at my house and hear my music and laugh at my people and run on my lawn and swim in my pool, eat from my table, drink from my cabinets. So here's the question. If people worshipped you and adored you and esteemed you, is that meaning for you? 
Does, does that validate your existence? If you were more famous than you are, does that make life more meaningful? Solomon says no. I tried it. No. I already went that road. He tried education. My wisdom remained with me. This is the whole idea that if I learn something, then that's meaning. If I can be the smartest man who exists, that gives me wholeness, that gives me achievement, that gives me value, that gives all that I believe is existence, existence. Man, you can read from 1 Kings. Kings and queens would trek for miles to come sit at Solomon's feet and ask him questions. What if the best and the brightest were just trying to set up appointments with you? Everyone, Einstein, Plato, Spurgeon, right? I mean, all these people are just going, oh, can, can I get an appointment with John, with Sarah, with Mike, with Chris? I mean, how do I set up an appointment? Oh, it's about uh, five, five years from now. Oh, okay, just put me in, right? I mean, just so you could just show off your knowledge. Does that mean you exist? Does that validate wholeness and meaning? Solomon says no. Solomon says, man, after I looked at my 20 undergraduate and master's degrees, that didn't validate existence for me. That didn't validate meaning for me. That didn't validate wholeness for me. Because here's what he realized. In the end, he forgot that there was something in common with everyone who didn't even graduate high school yet, and that's death. If in the end, death is coming for all of us, whether I've got all those degrees, all that stuff, all that wisdom, it's vanity if nothing's coming after it. I mean, I can't press enough on this. Like, you've got to actually sit and consider this. If, if you came from nowhere and you're headed to nowhere, it doesn't matter at the end of the day how much you know, how much you do, how much you achieve, how much you have. It doesn't matter because death is the trump card every single day for every single person, and you can't get around that. So you've got to do something with what is real meaning here. I'm not going to make a lasting dent on anything. There has to be something beyond the sun because in the end, Solomon's going, the high school kid who hasn't even graduated and me with all my knowledge and wisdom, in the end, we're all both going to be dead and forgotten in 50 years, 60 years. I don't mean not remember, but eventually, in 4,000 years, they're forgotten. In 10,000 years, they're forgotten. It doesn't matter. Eventually, there is no trace of you, and life just continues to move and pass. Death is the end, that your worldly wisdom is worthless and it trumps every card you play. This is, philosophers call this pessimistic determinism, right? For you philosophers in the room. Um, consciousness of death is always the beginning of searching for somebody, right? It's always the beginning of searching for meaning. Listen, I preach at, at weddings. <laughs> it's amazing. You, you know what you get? People rolling their eyes. Like here, right? So, so, that wasn't funny? Okay, so, so what you do is preach at a wedding, people roll their eyes. You know what? Preach at a funeral, you know what people are doing? They're paying attention. Why? Because there's something about death that arouses the senses, that forces us to explain and consider meaning, to consider why we're here and where we're going and where we come from. So at the end of it all, here Solomon says, I considered it. Now, when he says considered it, that word literally means to just face it in the eyes. He goes, no, I just faced reality as honest as I could. I looked it right in the face. 
if I don't come from anywhere and I don't go to anywhere and I'm just enjoying all this stuff, at the end of the day, it's got no meaning for me. And the, the humanist who says, well, I just kind of, you know, rail against that and love people well and just give people a hug and someone making a lasting dent, he goes, that's a lie. Like, you're not making a lasting dent. You're just trying to help, you know, massage the soul that's already wounded and dying. And if you've got the, the, the you know, hedonist who says, I'm just going to face pleasure in the spite of it anyways and just defy existence through doing this and doing this, he goes, that's just lunacy too. I mean, why would you just search for joy in that? When you know death is the end, you're still not making a lasting, lasting dent. The empiricist that says, man, I just grab hold of all of life, and even though death is coming, even though I acknowledge a meaningless life, somehow I'll try to find meaning underneath it somewhere. And Solomon continues to unravel and show that is the most foolish thing I've ever heard if death is the end for you and you don't come from anything and move towards anywhere has to be meaning somewhere. So his answer is pleasure pursued for its own sake can't satisfy you. Because all you're really doing now is chasing pleasure for the sake of pleasure. And you're just a mindless body that exists and somehow you're in this marriage where you, you love your wife but there's just kind of an electromagnetic field that evolved from this proverbial pit of just muck and stuff. And so I don't know, what is it, even is love? I mean, how do you even love your kids if they're just accidents, right? They're just accidents that, that happened and were made over time. So what does love mean? What does any affection mean? What, if there's no deity who can describe that, prescribe that, act in that, how do you find any basis for morality or any of the ways that you believe and feel? Where does that come from? Your brain, where's your brain come from and Solomon's going I learned all this as I just chased and chased and chased pleasure for the sake of pleasure it did nothing for my soul it gave me no lasting satisfaction he looks back at his life laughing dreading eking dancing listening enjoying planting creating building working relaxing goes in the all I got momentary here for a minute gone tomorrow pleasure He's saying, you don't have the capacity, friends, to get where you're trying to go. You don't have the capacity. And listen, outside of Jesus Christ, outside of the incarnate God who came for dissatisfied sinners, he came not just to save you, but to satisfy you. So that's what makes him the best savior because Jesus comes in every bit that Solomon was tempted by and pursued, Jesus Christ fully resisted, was fully obedient in, took it to the grave, killed it. He didn't just kill your wicked outward actions, he killed your lack of love for God. See, that's what's beautiful about the gospel. I told you two weeks ago, it's not just violation of law, it's violation of love. And so some of you think, well, it's just that I do these things, need to be mended there. No, it's that you chase something that won't satisfy you and at Genesis 3 you follow. Adam and Eve, your great, 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 great mother and father, and you said, I'm just going to replace chasing God for chasing his stuff, and you're in the same rat race they were in until they found a covering. And Jesus says, I'm your covering for your dissatisfied soul, and this makes Jesus the perfect savior for your dissatisfied soul. Because he withheld from every bit of temptation that Solomon pursued, and he by essence is all that you were made to chase, worship, love, and long for. So now there's something over the sun that's tangible that I can put my hands around, that, that, that gives me depth. And listen, there's a silliness out there that like non-Christians don't have fun, and don't enjoy pleasure. That is such crazy talk. And listen, if you're in here, I'm sorry that people have said that. Like you can have a ton of fun. You just can't have the fullness of it. You can't enjoy the holiness of it. 
your marriage, your love, your patience eventually terminates in some way, untied to Jesus Christ. Eventually, those things that you pursue and long for, the brick wall always shows up, the ceiling you always hit, and you can't seem to get beyond it. Which is why, if you look at your life, you eventually adapt it, change it, alter it, to try to search for deeper meaning and purpose. And here, Solomon says, I've got barrels of the most expensive wine. I've got the top 10 billboard artists playing at my house, swimming in my pool. Each time, eventually it loses steam, so he tries to make it better. And I've got a house, but I need to make it bigger. You can go to southwest Jerusalem and see these pools dug out. When I was there, I saw them. These pools dug out where, where Solomon dug these out for these water wells to provide for his forests and his orchards. It's unlike anything you've ever seen. I can't believe that a human being can possess so much property. And he says, every time it ran out of steam, every time my soul grew more frustrated and became just a predictable life. And I just tried to get more and tried to get more. And then the women, I just went after sex and money and all these things that the world says go after. And man, my fantasies eventually ran out. There wasn't a woman I hadn't had. I mean, there's no more women to have. Like, so where do you get from there? You're on the summit dying cold and alone on Mount Everest. And, and Jesus says, no, that's why I came from heaven, from over the sun, because you couldn't ascend to me because you don't know how. And I became your life for you. I became your joy for you. I became your salvation for you. I became your satisfaction for your dissatisfied soul. All that you need is in me. All that you've ever longed for is in me. All that you need to make right in your fractured soul can only be mended by me. Because it's sin that's causing you to chase those things. And until you deal with sin, you'll never be made right. And only Jesus can make you right. So that's why otherwise you're just going to therapy sessions your whole life trying to fix something they don't have the tools to fix. And Jesus says, I'm here. I came that might have life and have it to the fullest. You can have life now. You can have meaning now. You can have joy now. It's amazing that he got to a place where Solomon says, I tried everything and had everything to a degree that meaning became completely lost. He's going, what is meaning even anymore? It, it's just chasing the wind. And all of that chasing brought him back to the same place he started. That's what's insane. He ended up, and you'll see in this book, he ends up at the same place where he started out trying to chase it all. Empty, frustrated, lonely. So he did his experiment, I'm going to chase it all, and now he's back in the same place he started. It did nothing for him. And friends, the pursuit of pleasure was not sinful of Solomon. Okay? Um, God wired you to chase pleasure, to want pleasure, to want joy. Um, because he's not a cosmic killjoy, right? He's after your joy. I talked to so many people. He's not the enemy of freedom. He's not the enemy of pleasure. He was the maker of those things. He created those things. He's the author of those things. If you go back to Genesis 2, verse 16, when God makes the world, makes heavens and earth, and he, and he creates the man, he gives him dominion to rule over everything. In verse 16, he says, and the Lord commanded the man, this is Adam saying, hey, you should surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, don't eat that, for in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. 
This is a good, benevolent, generous God saying, hey, have at it. Enjoy, roam, subdue, but hey, just don't do that one thing. Man, God is a generous God. God's not a God who's stingy going, hey, don't eat all those trees. He goes, just that one, but you can have at it with the rest of what I've given you. He's overly generous, overly kind, overly benevolent. He's a loving father. That says, man, enjoy all of this stuff that I've given you. And interesting, God's command is the man is free to do anything and enjoy everything except disobey. Have at it, just don't disobey. A lot of people think, oh, God's a mean landlord, right? Just abuses me, wants to take from me, doesn't want me to have fullness of life. No, he's just a good dad trying to protect you of all the futility that you're chasing. He's like a good father going, hey, hey, son, have at it. Just don't run with the scissors, drink the antifreeze, and put your hand on the stove. Right? You're going to kill yourself. So this is God saying, hey, don't disobey because that will end up in ruin for you. And you have the option to listen and believe it or do not believe it. Every sin is an issue of unbelief, right? No, I believe that's more lasting. I believe that will lead to satisfaction. That flirtation you deal with and the woman you kind of lay eyes on, you think, no, maybe that will somehow let me arrive at some euphoric existence that my spouse cannot provide. And I'm telling you it's a lie. Talk to anyone who's been there, done that. It gnaws at their soul. It pesters their mind. It ruins their children. And just like him, he says, obey. See, look, the key to a true life is not to be brilliant. It's to be obedient. It's very simple. It's not to be the smartest tool in the shed and have all this stuff. It's just simply be obedient to your good dad who says, hey, this is how I've wired things to work. This is how I've ordered things in the universe so you can trust me or not trust me. The brain that you're using to think in capacities, I gave you that brain. Oxygen you're breathing to stay alive, it gave you that oxygen. I mean, just the DNA strands in your body that hold you together and make you you, I gave you those DNA strands. So don't think that you have a smarter, wiser way. So God is good, and God gave us the pleasures in this life not to be tied to you, but to be tied to him. Because, friends, where you place your hope is imperative to your joy. Wherever it is you're just banking your hope, that's imperative to your life of joy. If your hope is on the marriage, if your ultimate hope is on the bank account, if your ultimate hope is on real estate, if your ultimate hope is on wealth and ease, if your ultimate hope is on uninhibited sexuality, if your ultimate hope is on religion, if your ultimate hope is on any of these things, you're constantly going to be betrayed by them in some way or another because they cannot hold up to an expectation that they were not designed to hold up under. Your marriage was not given to you to be a savior and a God. Your money was not given to you to be a savior and a God. Your job was not given to you to be a savior or a God. Your house for sure was not given to be a savior or a God. Your children were not given to you to be a savior or a God. Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone was given to you to be savior and be king. And be God and be on the altar of your heart to where now you're the freest man or woman that exists in the universe because you do not need anything to enslave you and trap you and keep you. You are free to live and enjoy and walk and steward and find the deepest of meaning because you're freed from the irony of life that says have this when instead you're putting shackles on, not taking shackles off. Praise God for Jesus. I mean, amen. I mean, this is just incredible news. And so Solomon, listen, he doesn't tell you this to get you depressed. 
He tells you this to drive you to God. He tries you. The, the clue to your unsatisfied longing is, is to get you to God, not to get you to more vanity. The clues you feel are all to get you over the sun. You know, Tom Brady, when he, I read this, I think two or three weeks ago, Tom Brady, when he um, won his third Super Bowl, right? I don't know if you guys remember that. I, by the way, I don't like the Patriots, so this is not a Patriots. Please, please, yeah. You can applause for that if you need to, but yeah, okay, so not a Patriots fan. But um, he said in his interview, sitting down, and they were going, uh, Tom, what's this, what's this feel like? And he goes, man, you know what? You would think after three Super Bowl rings that I would have felt like I arrived. Like, 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 like that I have meaning, that I have wholeness, that I, you, you'd think. But you know what I'm constantly asking myself? There's got to be something more out there for me. Like, like this, this doesn't satisfy me. Like I feel like there's just still something more I need. And the interviewer goes, Tom, what is it? Like he's Jesus. Hey, Tom, can you tell us? Like, this is great. I mean, you're here. You know what Tom said, Tom Brady said? He said, I wish I knew. I know, Tom, Jesus. Right? I got a good answer for you. Yeah, I actually know. There is something greater than three Super Bowl rings with a little piece of lead that sits on your finger and probably gives you cancer. Like, there's probably something better than that, and it's Jesus Christ, risen, crucified, shed blood, bought you, owns you, puts you in a family, get to walk with him, love him, enjoy him, worship him. I mean, goodness gracious, like th- this, is, this is what Solomon is trying to move your heart and he's trying to get you to a place to where you love him and see him and want him and stop chasing the vain pursuit of life to find meaning like everybody else. So beautiful. So beautiful. C.S. Lewis said this. I want to end with this quote. He He basically said that we live as some sort of ontological proof for the existence of God. What he's saying is that your dissatisfaction points you to God. Your dissatisfaction points you to the need of a Savior. Your dissatisfaction points you to the longing that's in your heart and soul. So now, brothers and sisters, we taste God's pleasure when we receive laughter as a gift gift from him, not to belittle others, not to make a mockery of things, but knowing that we will one day enter into our master's joy who will laugh over us, who will smile, who will give us unhindered comedy, that we will not need to find satisfaction but enjoy in its right place, not as God but with God. When we drink wine and, and we enjoy the good gifts that God gives us, those drinks, those beverages, we don't do it unlawfully or to make a mockery of ourselves or to find meaning but to enjoy it so we worship him and love him more. And you realize this is not God, it's a gift from God. We taste the pleasures of God when we build and plant and design and go to work for the good of others and God's glory, praying that the Holy Spirit's work in our doing might manifest itself in conversations to bring about that friend to a place where he knows and loves Jesus, the one who can satisfy his whole, his whole heart. More than just his job, more than just design, more than just building, more than just fixing. We landscape and look at trees, remember the garden that we got booted out of, that we're going to be back in one day, that will be more glorious than any landscape design you've ever seen. You're tasting the pleasures of God there. Life has meaning now. There's silhouettes behind everything now. 
want to end with one verse. Because I want to move from intellectual things to practical to end. Um, because some of you are going, okay, this is real good in theory. How do, how do I get on the ground with this? Like, like satisfaction in God. Like, now, obviously, there's the word. There's intellectual. There's Habakkuk 3 and Psalm 4 and Psalm 63. Your, your love is better than life. And we can read those verses and intellectually go, I want to believe that. And that's true. And that's deeply meaningful and valuable. We want to pursue those things. But here's what's awesome. Um, God just doesn't give us Christ who dies and pays for our sin. He gives us the spirit. Right? The Spirit is now your resident truth teacher that helps you grab hold of these truths and realities that you hear. Now, these are fueled by the Spirit walking in tandem with others because God doesn't save you just to himself. He saves you to a people. So here's what Paul says. Paul says something in Philippians 3. He says, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Paul doesn't say, hey, model how perfect I am. He says, hey, model my pursuit. Model my pursuit of God, my pursuit of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Model the ways that I learn joy and learn satisfaction in him and learn how to wage war on sin and learn from me and these models of other people around us how you grow in godliness. Here's what he's saying. Stop playing defense and start playing offense. Like so many Christians just live in defense. Shield up, hunkered down, like, just wait. No, you read the scriptures, the church is always busting into territory. It's on offense. You're going after your sin to kill it. You're going after territory to rescue men and women from sin and from torment and from hell, right, with the Holy Spirit's help to be agents of ambassadors of reconciliation. Like, like be on offense. Like, don't sit back in defense and wait. Like, let's get up and move and act and be. So Paul says, hey, here's a way that you play offense, you hear all these things in theory, you hear these sermons, you walk and you listen, you sing, you pray. Hey, here's what you need to do. He says, find godly men and women and get around them and learn from them. And pay attention. God has given us saints here to grow in wisdom and pursue the pleasures of God. Listen, I do not learn how to pursue the pleasures of God by simply reading my Bible alone. I do. And it is tremendously necessary and important. You know me, I'm a Bible guy. I'm not saying, throw Bibles out, just find people. I would never say that. I'm saying in tandem with, now get alongside others that can help you understand, to walk with you, to guide you, to encourage you. There have been older men in this church I get with all the time who deeply bless my soul, who I learn from. I don't know everything. I'm not where they're at in life stage. I'm not where they're at with their kids. I'm not, it's so nourishing to me. Oh, that's how you chase the pleasures of God when you're 55? Praise God, I need to know that. That's how you did it when you were 30? Now, now here, listen, can I just be honest and frank? Um, and this is more of a, hey, keep doing what you're doing because I see it happening and it's beautiful. God has given this place godly men and women that love Jesus and want to follow him and chase him. He has. They're sitting right around you with the same junk in their drawer. Right? Don't think, go to their house, all cleaned up. If it is, it's under the bed, okay? Right? I mean, that's, that's every Christian, right? So, so just know. So here's the two roadblocks, and I want to just tell you to not worry about these roadblocks. One is, um, I just don't want to inconvenience them. All right, well, get over your pride and ask them. Right? <laughs> I'm shy. Okay, well, get over your pride and ask them. Ask somebody else for help. Email, write. And listen, in your asking, 
be gracious. If you don't hear from them, like on Facebook, within three seconds, like don't put, make them like into a voodoo doll and start stabbing them with pins. Like, come on. A little far, but you know what I'm saying. Seriously. Guys, I've seen it. I mean, I get emails. Man, I reached out to this person. It's been 12 hours, and they haven't written me back. No, just man, be patient. Everyone's in different life stages. Everybody has different things happening in their world. Be patient, gracious. If that doesn't work out, find somebody else. That's what God would provide that person. Listen, we want discipleship walking to be natural, normal. We're not a church that's going to put programs all in front of your face to fill your schedule and calendars and days and hours with just more stuff. We want it to be mere and simple as you learn from the Bible and sit with other saints that we would walk in grace together. Through community groups, through studies, through one-on-one, through coffee, whatever. But that we live as a people on offense, not defense. The other roadblock is please don't be looking for the godly Goliath. Like that person who just, and I've talked to many about this where your expectation is so unrealistic. They don't exist here. I'm, I can't even be that. Right, guys, I mean, you're looking for the guy who eldered for 12 years and raised 15 kids and loved and served his wife and is going on tour with his next worship album. Like, that, that's just not... Find the people who are strong where you're weak. So they might not be married, but they got a good, strong doctrinal grasp of the scriptures. Get with them. Who cares if they're not married? Um, others of you, maybe there's people who, man, they just, they, how do you, you've seen their prayer life and it just ministers to you. Whether you've been at corporate prayer at 9 a.m. or around them, just get with them and say, hey, how have you grown in prayer like that? Have you seen the pleasures of God in your prayer life? I mean, how have, you, how have you learned to fight sin like you're fighting your sin? How have you learned to love your impatient kids like you've learned to love your impatient kids? And just ask them and grow in grace. Imitate model pursuit and let's do this together guys this is this is work until we reach glory no one wakes up and stumbles into a godly woman or man of god like that doesn't happen you got to be on offense you got to say hey i'm i'm hearing this i'm being warned by this from solomon i I need to walk in this Let's, let's ask the spirit to help us in this way father we need your help we need more of jesus we need to know what it means to taste the pleasures of God, to see the pleasures of God, to walk in godliness, to be protected from the vanity and vain pursuit that Solomon warns against. Father, would you help us to do that? Would God, would, right now, would you give people the space to lay down what they need to lay down, the idols that they worship, the identities that they walk in that are not Jesus Christ? Father, would they be swept up by the blood that was shed, body that was broken for them for forgiveness of sin and newness of life. God, would you satisfy us sinners this morning with Jesus? Would you satisfy us with your mercy? Would you satisfy us as we see your grace and kindness despite us, loving us in our rebellion, continuing to forgive and receive us as your own. God, I want to provide just a moment for us to have honesty, clarity, have confession where there needs to be confession. God, I worship this. I worship this. I don't worship you. God, I don't believe this. God, help me to believe this. Father, I have sinned in this way. Forgive me of this sin. Maybe there needs to be some open confession this afternoon with somebody. 
James 5 says, confess your sins to one another and you'll be healed. Not only do you need forgiveness from God, but maybe there's people in your life that he wants to heal and restore and reconcile relationship in. Some of you guys have just been living your whole Christian life on defense, waiting for others to show up, waiting for the magic mail to arrive in the mailbox, or something to all of a sudden work in your soul out of nowhere. God calls us to active pursuit, fueled by his spirit, gifted by his grace. God, would you shape us as a church that's on offense, that it loves to pursue the pleasures of God? through the word, through meditation, through prayer, through gathering, through others. God, might we rub off on each other in ways that reverberate into eternity. Give us a hunger for that, a longing for that. Help us where we're timid. Help us where we're hesitant. God, remind us that sin is serious and salvation is at stake. And holiness can be walked in and joy can be pursued. Might we worship you because these things are true and can be had and are had by those who are yours. In Jesus' name, amen.